Greetings, I'm your host, Jason Miles, and welcome to another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. So glad to have you guys with us live, and of course, happy to have the people that will be checking this out later on the rewatch, and of course, on the audio-only formats. Before we start, if you're new to the channel, please hit like, please hit subscribe. So many of you, we found, have not hit the subscribe button, and Tucson informed me today that we're like seven subscribers away from 15,000 so i think that's some sort of good milestone that helps us appear in more algorithms so if you like what we do here and you want to support the show the easiest thing to do it's very passive just hit the subscribe button hit the notification bell so you're alerted whenever we go live because we're constantly doing new shows like this my continued gentrification of white guy wednesday taking it over where am i taking it back hmm. as always thank you to the, all the subscribers on youtube and twitch and the audio only podcast formats that you find us on also keep in mind if you listen to the show on apple podcast there is a subscribe feature now that apple has that allows you guys to hear the champagne room um of course, thank you to the patrons. Collectively, you are all the fuel in the engine that keeps TIR moving along. If you're enjoying what we do here and want access to those post-show champagne rooms, there's only one way. Become a patron for as little as $3 a month or $30 for the year. You can have access to the champagne room, be part of the live virtual audience for the Pascal Robert-hosted Mau Mau Hour, which just ended. For those of you that are patrons, welcome. We're watching the Pascal Robert heated discussion with Dr. Paul McComb, Kali Akuno, and Pascal Robert on the usefulness of multipolarity. Is there usefulness? Also, you can join us for movie night when you're a patron. It can all be yours. The champagne room last night was one for the ages, as they say. Um, Someone even said, as we were ending the show, maybe you guys should erase this one because this is pretty close to cancellation. And we were kind of laughing about it for a while after the show. And then Pascal called me today and I told him that YouTube had pulled the show. And one of the best comments I've, I've ever gotten, not going to say who it is, but I, I have to read this comment to you guys because I thought it was uh, so apropos of what we do in the champagne room. At first, I was like, fucking YouTube snowflake bullshit, pulling episodes at the drop of a hat. <laughs> then I watched it. Obviously, I think that pulling videos is bullshit, but I can't say I am surprised. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, I think this shit is funny as hell, but all the boxes on the no-no list were getting checked. I mean, the chat alone. Kamala claps harder than Israeli rockets, damn. I didn't even see someone said that. In the I wouldn't mind if you guys in the comments want to continue this discussion. About Kamala Harris, if you're if you watch the Champagne Room, I would love to hear what you guys have to say about that. Since Pascal disagreed, but if you would like to have access, if you would like to chime in on these discussions, 
in the champagne room as well. Again, there's only one way. Become a patron. Also, tickets are still available for the live book launch meet and greet event in the San Francisco Bay Area, November 18th. I'll be joined with a lot of my heavy metal and punk rock friends. I'll be joined with Chris Contos, original drummer of Machine Head. He's now in Forbidden. He was in Attitude Adjustment. Jesus, the Boneless Ones. Uh, Rick Cunel from Exodus, the original guitar player of Exodus. Of course, good friend Craig LaCicero, who founding member of Forbidden, still in Forbidden, uh, was in the movie Death. So it's going to be a lot of fun storytelling. These guys have, you know, endless, endless fun stories. Uh, we're definitely going to have a panel discussion and a Q&A afterwards. So get your tickets wherever you're watching or listening to the show. There are links in the description. Now to the topic at hand. And I do want to say this is probably going to be a bit of a heavy conversation. We're going to be talking about drugs in America. And I know a lot of people are affected by drug use. Me personally, it has affected my life. Uh, not my own personal use, but family. I grew up around it. So I have a certain relationship to them. Um, our guest today has written a book discussing the history of drug use and of uh, the prohibition of drug use in this country, asking the question, why does a rich nation that harbors such a small percentage of the global population produce a such a large amount of drug use? How do we attempt to address it? Ben Fong opens his book, Quick Fixes, with this quote. American drug use today is truly world historical. At 4% of the Earth's population, Americans consume 80% of its opioids, including 99% of its hydrocodone and 83% of its attention deficit hyperactivity disorder medications. You guys may know that as ADHD. One in three Americans suffers from anxiety, depression, or both. Globally, that number is about one in 20. And one in six is on psychiatric medication. The 500 billion per year we spend on pharmaceuticals is complemented by another 150 billion per year on illegal drugs. I'm assuming that number is like kind of guessed, right? No one's sitting there taking a tally on the street corner. If so, want to know what that guy's job is like by any measure we are a uniquely drug society when the sun sets on the land of the free the owl of minerva will simply fall off its branch in an intoxicated haze Oof. benjamin fong is honors faculty fellow at barrett the honors college and associate director of the center for work and democracy at arizona state university he's a sun devil he is the author of Death and Mastery, Psychoanalytic Drive Theory, and the Subject of Late Capitalism, and co-editor with Craig Calhoun of the Green New Deal and the Future of Work. His other work can be found in Jacobin Catalyst, the New York Times, and Damage Magazine, amongst other places. I discovered Ben's work having lunch with Catherine Liu. She goes, you need to have Ben Fong on your show. You wrote this great book. And then, no BS, right after I get back from hanging out with Catherine and Fong, I think he did an event with good friend Cedric Johnson. 
So those are two solid references. And I definitely recommend this book. If you like Cedric's work, Ben is a deep diver like that. If you're a fan of people like Mike Davis that really get into the weeds. That's the kind of work that Ben does. So I really appreciate that. So please welcome our guest, Professor Ben Fong. How are you? Hey, Jason. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, though it sounds like I wish I'd got an invitation to the champagne room. <laughs> no. I don't know what goes on there, but it sounds pretty good. It, You know, it's the name fits. We, we make it like a real, you're behind a velvet rope, and these are all the conversations that you don't feel comfortable to have during the main show. And um, for once my co-host was very raw last night and uh it was a lot of fun so one of these we got to bring you back first of all on the show anyway Um, uh and when we do we'll have the whole gang here and we'll go into the champagne room with you and you'll see why it's just our guest came back with us and it was just inappropriate the whole thing just inappropriate which is the kind of fun we want to have here on tir uh i guess i have to ask the big question first we spend billions fighting a war on drugs attempting to rehabilitate people addicted to drugs but these battles seem all for naught. we mentioned on the show last night while reflecting on the bush jr years that his second term in office was a moment where many people are starting to see uh and call out the failures of the decades-long drug war i think no, I guess that's the first Obama term when Michelle Alexander writes the new Jim Crow, which really gets people. Um, but I, that terminology was used before that book was written. You know. um, fundamentally, what are we missing when we try to diagnose the issues with our drug consumption, in your opinion? I, I think um, the history of drugs in America is a history of uh, rapid alternation between excessive drug enthusiasm on the one hand and excessive drug prohibitionism on the other. Um, and it's really, you know, it's America that starts it all off in the early 20th century. Like uh, we first instituted domestic drug controls in 1914 with the Harrison Act. We pushed for international drug treaties uh, with, uh, with uh, Charles Brent and um, the, the first global prohibition on opium and cocaine. And this was a time when we had this enormous patent medicine industry as well, uh, with everything on the market from heroin, cocaine, coral hydrate, basically anything you wanted to get at the time. It was, uh, it was available at your local pharmacy and pretty cheap as well. Um, so and this, and this uh, constitutive contradiction in American, um, the American approach to drugs, again, between cycling between enthusiasm and prohibition, it's, it's really been with us for well over a century. And what I argue in the book is that both are kind of quick quick fixes. They're fixes uh, in lieu of broader structural fixes, uh, social fixes, fixes um, that could address what both excessive medication and excessive drug warriorism do in different form. Um, you know, with medication, I think it's pretty, pretty obvious, right? In the absence of um uh social betterment and political change we drug ourselves into dealing with a uh, hostile and oppressive society 
I think the same is true of drug policy as well. And that's why I think that's also a quick fix. Um, if you just look at the history of drug legislation in America um, in the um, in the late 19th century with anti-opium laws in the 1910s with cocaine, 1930s with marijuana, uh, 1960s with psychedelics, 1980s with crack. It was always uh, some specific social group that was being blamed for broader social ills that the punishment of that group was clearly not going to fix. So um, in the case of drug policy, too, I want to say uh, uh, drug drug policy is a quick fix. Mm. Um, wow. I mean, there's a lot to, to think about there with drug policy, especially when we start thinking about like, you know, there was a time where cocaine was totally legal and kind of encouraged for even slaves, uh, the enslaved. And now, you know, not now, but, <laughs> you know, after, um, was it, I guess, during Reconstruction, um, they start to have some some local laws that really crack down on cocaine use because of the fear of these coked out buff ass black guys going around. Definitely um, opium is a problem in places like where I'm from in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, now white women are being addicted to opium, you know, hanging out in the dens. Um, yeah, there yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, and that is the one sort of um, uh, uh, you know, red thread running through all of this. Again, all those episodes that I mentioned, late 19th century, it's uh, Chinese immigrants, uh, the, the so-called yellow peril and, um, and smoking opium. In the 1910s, uh, it was uh, black men in the South, particularly black stevedores along the ports, um, who, uh, you know, scaremongering around that was really what um, was what made um, the legislature add uh, cocaine to the list of prohibited substances. It had long been thought that that opium in particular was going to be the target of the sort of initial phase of the drug war. But cocaine was added uh, because of that. In the 1930s, it was uh, fears around uh, Mexican migration. Uh, the 1960s, again, the new left, 1980s. Um, uh, black people in blighted urban areas. You know, it's 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 uh, the anytime you get a drug scare, there's always some marginalized group uh, in in the crosshairs. Mm-hmm. Um, you discuss temperance in your book. Uh, why did this movement catch on to the point we had a constitutional amendment to outlaw the consumption of alcohol, something we now see as a foolish act? Uh, why do you think none of the movements to do the opposite, to legalize drugs, have been as effective? Is is temperance just a historical moment? Uh, is it sim- Or is it simply the amount of money that we invest in incarceration and treatment? Yeah, I mean, it should be a fairly remarkable fact still um, that the United States prohibited alcohol, a substance that we absolutely love for a full 13 years. Uh, it was a wild, it was a wild experiment. Um, and I think the temperance cause is um, actually a pretty clear iteration of the book's basic, basic thesis that when we are, um, you know, excessive moments of drug prohibitionism, their responses to their moral responses to problems of of capitalism that we're not dealing with by political means. So, you know, the temperance cause was about many things. It was about evangelical spirit. Uh, It was about a certain middle class status anxiety. It was certainly about um, wanting to punish uh, immigrant Catholic men in large cities. 
Um, and it was about disciplining the workforce, but I, I think it, at root it was about trying to deal with the broad variety of social ills that industrial capitalism had unleashed in the postbellum period. And uh, to, to do that, you know, you needed a, some political vehicle. You needed a workers' party, you needed a labor party, you needed a socialist party. And America, on you know, because of our particularly brutal capitalist class, we didn't get any of those things. We didn't get a political response to industrial capitalism, and instead we got a very strong moral response in the form of the temperance movement. And I think that's really what what gave it its 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 force. Like without uh, without that, I don't think we would have had a, a uniquely successful um, temperance movement. And in, in you know in places in Europe, for instance, that got those political vehicles. There were temperance movements. There were much more limited experiments in prohibition, but there's nothing on the scale of the um, of the American prohibition experiments. Um, I mean, to get to the second part of your question, just about about legalization, there there have been moments when um, you know where it was either a reality or where it was on the table. You know, like um, late 19th century. Again, we had this enormous patent medicine industry. Um, the 1970s is a really interesting period here yeah. because um, I think 12 states had decriminalized marijuana, um, cocaine. People were talking about it like it was about to be legalized as well. You know, the, the White House drugs are, um, uh, you know, said it was uh, probably the safest illegal drug around. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Harvard and Yale psychiatrists were talking about how cocaine was about as dangerous as potato chips. Um, you know, there, there, this was a real moment um, before on the cover of Time magazine. Uh, yeah, on the cover of Newsweek, New York Times. I mean, all ran uh, stories about cocaine like it was a fun party accessory, mm -hmm. right? Not that not that it was the, the social scourge it was made out to be in the 1980s. Um, and, you know, I think that fell apart for reasons that uh, I'm sure we'll talk about. But the present's also a really interesting moment where um, it does seem like in certain areas, legalization and decriminalization will indeed become the norm. Um, not, not everywhere, but there's a lot of, you know, with, with marijuana, certainly we're in this odd hybrid space. Um, and with psychedelics, I, I think saying psychedelics as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Psychedelics, uh, where I've spent a lot of time recently researching, um, I've been, I've been looking at the uh, psilocybin legalization model in Oregon. Um, you know, it's kind of overdetermined. There's a lot of big corporate interests interested in the psychedelic space. Um, and so I, I can only see those trends continuing from here. Um, the cocaine conversation is kind of interesting because, again, to your point, if it's a wonder drug, there's a few other things that come out um, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s as things that are non-habit forming. Excuse me. Cocaine definitely is one, and then MDMA, uh, ecstasy, was on the cover of those same magazines as this, you know, it's a cool new thing at the clubs. Check it out. Uh, but with cocaine, we start using it in different ways that concentrate uh, its power, right? We start smoking it. That becomes problematic. And this is in the late 70s and early 80s. People are freebasing cocaine. It's not like... Um, that started after New Jack City. Yeah, uh, there's a, there's an advertisement in the book. Uh, I think it was from 19, like early 70s uh, from a high times. And it's for a freebasing kit that you can <laughs> order through the mail. 
we don't know how addictive or do you think we're kind of naive to how addictive cocaine will be because so many people that got kind of hooked on the fun of it in the 80s or late 70s the disco years let's say the disco heyday uh definitely fall off in the in the early 80s um you know let's think studio 54 is maybe the highlight of cocaine um in in american pop culture for a reference but then seeing how that fell off so hard as well so many people kind of succumbing to their addictions um can we ever look to legalize drugs like cocaine um that one is probably not going to be uh on the list Mm. i hate to say um and I, i would um i would argue less because well so there's i guess there's two things um, one is that uh, one odd thing about cocaine today is that while every other, well, uh, consumption of every other psychoactive substance in America is at an all time high and going up, mm-hmm. cocaine consumption in America actually is pretty low uh, by historical standards. Um, and it hasn't, it hasn't, um, you know, tailed up recently. I mean, the world as a whole is consuming a lot of cocaine. So, a lot of the new cocaine markets are outside of the United States, but I mean, it's an interesting, uh, it's, it's an interesting to paradox price yeah. though. I mean, when we think about cocaine, I, I yeah. talk about this. I'm, I'm sure you didn't get a chance to see too much of the stuff we do, but I do these little video essays and, and I've always been kind of annoyed about the way people view the, the cocaine trade in the eighties and nineties. Yeah. Um, it's always kind of uh, wayward black men and, their fatherless nature and you know greed when you have you know cheap cocaine coming up with the approval of the american government right from from south america and you have built-in distribution networks and gangs you start taking you take a kilo of this stuff you can rock it up and turn a five thousand dollar investment into like 50 grand to 100 grand overnight that means that these apartment houses these street corners are worth millions of dollars so of course you're going to have violence we see this with nation states we see this with you know corporate america when when they're trying to take over certain places you know you just can't go through the legal system and sue people you definitely can't lobby like you can with you're not you're not sacklers so i understood the violence but i felt like we were trying to reckon with this violence with morality yeah it didn't really make sense in my opinion but when it comes to you know the consumption of of drugs to me it's always well what are we getting a slew of like right now there's a slew of methamphetamine coming up from south of the border right so we're seeing more people addicted to that we're also we're producing (laughs) mass amounts um of opiates which is causing people once you fall off your insurance to start using heroin, which there's also kind of a a surplus of at the moment. Um, Do you feel like whatever there's a surplus of is what you get on the street? I mean, it wasn't like there was a massive demand. People weren't just walking around like 
I just really want to stay up all night. <laughs> there was an influx of cocaine in the in the late sixties, early seventies coming from from Colombia. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, so the the interesting paradox of cocaine is that um, it started to boom at precisely the moment where American consumption of a wide variety of other psychoactive substances started to fall. So you get the Controlled Substances Act in 1970, which creates the modern drug scheduling system. And uh, with that, uh, amphetamine use, benzodiazepine use, marijuana use, like across the board, drug consumption falls in the early 70s. And I, I chart this in the book, but if you look at the chart, all these drugs, the consumption of all these drugs is falling. And rising in its place is Andean cocaine. It really just fills the void uh, where everything else left off. And again, you know, today, while drug, while consumption of all these other drugs is at an all-time high, cocaine consumption remains fairly, fairly low. I don't know the answer to why that is precisely. There's this paper um, you can, uh, you know, your your um, listeners can Google. It's called Uncle Sam's Cocaine Nosedive. Uh, and the whole it, he tries to make sense of why it is. And people have different theories, um, uh, you know, but my I think the, the baseline um, reason for me is simply that there are a ton of other drugs available. Like, you know, there are worries about cocaine being laced with fentanyl and other things. Mm -hmm. And at a moment where it's pretty easy to get a wide variety of other psychoactive drugs, I think people just prefer prefer those. Has the pharmaceutical industry kind of won out in that regard? Because we have things like, uh, oh, is somebody getting their haircut? Sorry, it's, uh, that's the dryer. Are you in a black barbershop right now? I'm down, <laughs> I'm down in the basement with the washer dryer. <laughs> I figured as much. I'm messing with you. Um, you, you know, Adderall, for example. Yeah. Uh, these, to some people, might be cleaner highs. You know, we're not going to get now into the pill pressing. We're just... Is it just that the pharmaceutical industry learned from the street? Like, look, we can just make this stuff ourselves and we can lobby to make it legal. We can find a way to make it legal and have a use for it. You can't have a medical use for smoking crack. I mean, you could try, but that doctor is going to get laughed out of every you know <laughs> no one's going to try to peer review that paper but you can definitely say well we we found the problem to you know johnny not sitting down and it's uh yeah that he's got adhd so here we're going to give him some speed and he can take apart a television set like his uncle there have been um sorry i think that's the last buzz um there have been medical uses for cocaine. Uh, it was first introduced as an oral uh, anesthetic uh, in the late 19th century. And one, one could imagine um, medical uses for cocaine today as well. I mean, a lot depends on the route of administration. If you smoke Adderall, um, it's going to have the same kind of deleterious effects that smoking methamphetamine will. Um, you know, the case of the amphetamines is really, is really interesting. You know, there's... Um, is, this was something that was first released in America in the 1930s in the form of Benzedrine. Mm -hmm. And when they first released it, um, they knew it was good, but they didn't know exactly what to sell it for. And so the three mm -hmm. um, purposes that they debated at the time were one, um, cognitive and physical performance enhancement, um, two, weight loss, um, and three, mood elevation. 
Um, and they eventually went with the latter uh, at first with benzedrine, but they knew it kind of did all three things. Um, and throughout amphetamines history, it's been used to all three three purposes. And you know, if you just think about the basics of the American dream, uh, a drug that makes you smart, peppy, and thin, it's a pretty good drug to have <laughs> at your side. Um, smart, peppy, and thin. <laughs> I, I just want to say one thing about about methamphetamine because you know it's a drug that's really in um, the ether today. Uh, and there, you know, there's an interesting history that's debated today amongst drug experts as to like why methamphetamine, the, the current form of methamphetamine that you can find on the street is particularly deleterious. Um, but methamphetamine has long been used in pharmaceutical medications. It, you can still get it prescribed in the form of dizoxin. In the post-war period, it went by the name methadrine. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I mean, uh, amphetamine, dextroamphetamine, methamphetamine, these have long been used interchangeably in medications. And uh, fun fact, you could actually get a methamphetamine inhaler over the counter in America until 1965. Um, I have no words for the methamphetamine. The, the inhalers, uh, sorry, just to add one addendum to that. Inhalers, I think we're used to now seeing like the asthma inhalers where you get a regulated puff of a drug. And uh, in the post-war period, so you can, you can Google um, old benzedrine inhalers. Uh, in the post-war period, there were just um, uh, like aluminum tubes with a, a cotton filler inside that you could mm -hmm. soak, they soak the drug in and they put the cap on. And when you wanted some of the drug, you'd pop the cap off, take a whiff, and then put the cap back on. That was, that was the method, right? So it wasn't so regulated, but it was also something where you could um, just take the filler out and soak it in a beverage or just swallow it whole. And you could imagine there were industrious teenagers who figured that out pretty early on. Um, and so right away, almost from its introduction, benzedrine was being abused. Wow, that's that's interesting. Um, you didn't do any field research for this, did you? <laughs> <laughs> the, la the, la the laugh track saved me. Thank you. <laughs> I wasn't going to let you answer that question. <laughs> it won't be a, it won't be a buzzing uh, dryer anymore. It'll be the police. Uh, can you? <laughs> Can you talk about the creation of the drug scheduling system and how uh, it views certain drugs as more dangerous than others and in turn causes people to suffer more grave legal consequences depending uh, on the illicit substance that they're caught with? So um, I think it's a combination of factors. So the drug scheduling system was created in 1970 by the Controlled Substances Act. Um, and this is, uh, I mean, just um, in case your listeners don't know, this is what created the schedule uh, schedule one to schedule five. So schedule one, uh, the on schedule one, there are drugs like um, heroin, methamphetamine, or sorry, heroin, MDMA, psilocybin, marijuana. These are drugs that supposedly have uh, no medical use and are very dangerous. And then at the bottom, there's schedule five drugs. And these are, you know, things you can pick up at the drugstore for the most part. Um, and so the, the, the theory was that the drug scheduling system would give us a pretty clear idea of those things that we should avoid and those things that the DEA should seek out. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, with Schedule 5, things that should be regulated by the FDA, but that we shouldn't worry so much about. Um, that's the theory. 
And for, you know, at, at first, I mean, again, in theory, it sort of makes some sense. Drug laws were kind of a mess in the 60s. Everyone kind of understood that um, that they didn't really make sense. The Marijuana Tax Act had actually been declared unconstitutional in 1965. Um, there were new drugs like LSD that had appeared that people were wanting to make some sense of. This is also a time where the um, the downfalls of white market medications like um, amphetamines and benzodiazepines and barbiturates, people started to realize that these things were being abused too. And so there were a lot of different different things going on. And um, you know, it, I think it it did make sense to rethink drug laws at that period because it was such a mess. Um, the problem was it didn't really make much sense, and it was a highly political process. And so. Uh, you know, you have things like marijuana, which if we're just talking from a strictly pharmacological perspective, might be the most harmless drug in existence. Not that like it can't be abused and not that it doesn't cause problems, but just in terms of like its relative toxicity, it's not something that we should be worried about in comparison to a lot of other drugs. And yet, for some reason, it's a schedule one drug. Um, and then, you know, um, it, it doesn't you know, the scheduling system doesn't totally make sense of like what we punish either. So um, fentanyl, uh, cocaine, methamphetamine, these are all schedule two drugs for some reason, while psilocybin and marijuana are schedule one drugs. So, you know, I mean, I think that everyone kind of realizes that the drug scheduling system or at least this, the like where particular drugs are scheduled uh, is long overdue for a rethinking. Um, and this is, you know, somewhat astonishingly, this is something that could be changed by executive order. So, so anytime Joe Biden could sit down and with the stroke with a stroke of a pen, um, deschedule marijuana, deschedule psilocybin. Um, he he doesn't for you know various reasons we could talk about, uh, but this is this is a very fixable problem. But for some reason we're stuck with this scheduling system that doesn't make much sense of the harms or benefits of psychoactive drugs. Why doesn't he? Why don't we see Biden politicians? Politicians in general. I mean, before yeah. Joe Biden there was Donald Trump. Before Donald Trump there was Barack Obama, and 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 so forth. So you know, Bush Jr. and Bill Clinton supposedly used cocaine barack obama allegedly used it these guys all became president yeah why are they not changing the scheduling on something as non-habit forming as marijuana but we're seeing it being legalized kind of across the board in states what's what's the date what's the deal <laughs> with changing the scheduling yeah i mean it's a good question um one one feature of it is just that marijuana is a low priority voting issue. And so if you're just sort of making Democratic Party calculations, um, not moving on the issue or moving on the issue doesn't really make much of a difference either way. And so uh, in those kinds of situations, just letting the status quo be, I think that's part of it. Um, I think Biden in particular is a, is a genuine drug warrior. I mean, he he co-authored the 1984 Comprehensive Crime Bill with Strom Thurmond. You know, that's that's in his history. And you know, when they when they fired those staffers, those White House staffers, for admitting that they used marijuana, I don't think that that was just an accident. I think that was part of Biden's whole thing. I think he thinks of himself still as a, a drug warrior. Um, more more broadly, though, I, I think that the particular issue of marijuana is interesting. And I'd have to do more of a deep dive to say for sure. 
But um, we're, we're at a moment where it seems like the psychedelics thing is about to take off. And with psilocybin, LSD, and MDMA all schedule one, that's a big problem for the psychedelics industry. There's a lot where's, of where's ketamine at? Because there's now ketamine treatments that people are getting to deal with severe trauma. I actually used yeah. to date a woman whose son was going through that, and she said that he was seeing, you know, amazing results with uh, ketamine treatment. No, and ketamine's interesting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, I think it's Schedule two or three. Uh, but yeah, ketamine's uh, been FDA FDA approved for some time now, and it's it's kind of with ketamine in particular, it's kind of interesting because right now there are um, you know therapists and psychedelic facilitators across uh, across the country who are training to use drugs that are still in the uh, eyes of the federal government. Uh, very dangerous and have no medical application right Mm -hmm. and so in the absence of being able to actually do um psilocybin facilitation or lsd facilitation they're all using ketamine as a replacement and uh, you know i mean ketamine is a very different experience than lsd or mdma or psilocybin these are all different kinds of experiences and it's very curious that ketamine is taking the place it's the it's almost like the gateway drug for these other kinds of psychedelic facilitation. Um, oh, but just just real quickly on the um, on the descheduling issue. So um, with marijuana, I think that this poses a particular political problem. Um, with psilocybin, there's just not a lot of people in prison for psilocybin possession. Mm-hmm. There's still a lot of people in for marijuana possession. Uh, I know that Biden uh, state like, level. at the state level, right? I know there was a big issue about federal pardons, um, but that did not affect many people. Um, uh, so, you know, this is a broader political problem where if you did deschedule this, um, you'd have this enormous contradiction on your hands, right? Like, why why do we have so many people in prison for nonviolent drug offenses when we're coming to recognize that this thing that we've done such scaremongering around for so long, it's actually not that dangerous. And now we're recognizing it actually has medical applications. That's a, you know, that's a moment that I think it's a kind of political contradiction that I don't think Biden wants to deal with. With psilocybin, because there aren't as many people in prison for the possession of it, and because there are so many corporate interests really pushing for this psychedelic renaissance to become an enlightenment, um, I, I think that that actually has a greater chance of being descheduled than marijuana. Another thing, um, I, I forgot to write this question down before I sent it to you. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know if you even got into this in your book. Um, I hear a lot of people talk about, you know, especially in the world in we, which we exist in here on left media, there's always a, a bevy of conversations around things like puberty blockers, right? Um, And not that many kids are really taking them. But you know what kids are taking more than that? It's steroids. Why don't we talk more about young people using steroids? Because we still don't know fully the effects of how this is going to harm young bodies. I'm talking people as young as 13, 14 years old that don't need it, right? 
Well, this is a little bit outside my wheelhouse because, uh, and it's it's something of an arbitrary decision on my part to not deal with non-psychoactive drugs. And steroids is actually an interesting like liminal case there because you, you could definitely argue that it has psychoactive effects. Um, but no, I, I wanted to focus on the psychoactive drugs in particular. Um, if I were to extend the book uh, even further, I would definitely have a chapter on non-psychoactive drugs because some of the best sellers uh, are things like you know, cholesterol medication and arthritis medication, whatnot. Mm. Um, there might also be another interesting chapter on the behavioral addictions, like the way in which we think about uh, social media and sex and gambling as if they were drugs mm. and whatnot. Um, mm. But I, but I can speak to the question of like, you know, um, children and drugs more more broadly. And you know, I think that um, like what I've taught a class at Arizona State University for many um, years now about the sociology and history of drugs. And one thing that I'm always, you know, somewhat shocked by is that um, most of the classes had some experience being on psychiatric medications mm. um, from a very young age as well. You know, drugs that, um, you know, sometimes I've I've never heard of being prescribed for things uh, that then result in cascading drug treatment so that they end up being on sorry mm -hmm. so they end up being on multiple medications by the time they're a teenager um you know i mean this is a uniquely pharmacologically charged generation that's growing up right now and um that steroids would be part of the mix i'm i'm not so surprised by you know they're used to to taking pills for a wide variety of things it's fascinating to me because i don't see anyone wanting to talk about it for whatever reason and it, it's, it's a legitimate problem um and i think it all plays into kind of a weird moment that we're in right now i i agree with you that um a younger generation is a lot more medicated i'm 46 i assume you're somewhere in that age range 41 okay um we didn't have i can't remember anyone having adhd in my school and i went to school with a lot of white kids <laughs> but uh that laugh track saved you a lot <laughs> <laughs> but but seriously you know i i can't remember too many people taking medication for things or bipolar disorder yeah um depression uh and i'm not saying one generation is better than another it's just an observation but the acceptance of performance enhancing drugs right because th there's a lot cocaine adderall is a performance enhancing drug yeah absolutely right? mood stabilizers if you're in the orchestra is a performance enhancing drug so, so the acceptance of steroids and then the social acceptance after your body changes has blown me away what i've seen on the internet i'm talking kids as young as like 14 years old that can't bench press you know 135 pounds which is okay right you're a child <laughs> you're not supposed to do you know crazy bench press numbers and they you know felt bad about it and they're like i did a cycle of trend and it was so easy for them to obtain also um Younger people taking things like, you know, we don't talk about this either. Uh, younger people taking things like um, Viagra in their teenage years. 
Should we be looking at this as a problem or should we just be looking at this as the new norm? I think it's definitely a new norm and I don't want to get too generational because it, it, it very easily just, you know, turns into or it, it appears yeah. like it's just, uh, you know, an older guy complaining about the younger generation. Um, but I, I do think that there are different norms at play. Um, you know, one, one interesting thing, I think, is that there, there was a kind of romance to the illicit when I was uh, growing up, right? Mm -hmm. That like um, drugs were something officially dangerous. I went through the D.A.R.E. program like a lot of people. Um, and so all of these all of these scare tactics were sort of like seared into my brain from a young age. And so, you know, when I got to the to, to adolescence and it, it began to be, um, you know, just something that was around, um, there was there was something uh, scary about it, but there was something exciting as well. Right. Um, that kind of attitude, I just don't think exists uh, for young people today like that, that, that there's not that kind of. There's not that kind of worry that the sort of like dangerousness of the illicit simply because drugs are everywhere. Drugs are just like a feature of their reality in a way. Mm -hmm. So in, in place of that, in place of that sort of simultaneous like romance and danger, there's just kind of a widespread ambivalence, right? There, there's some understanding that we're preyed on by pharmaceutical companies in this really insidious way. But at the same time, we understand that with drugs, we can self-optimize in a way that's very desirable. Um, and I think that gives rise to just a lot of like, you know, yeah, I mean, ambivalence is the best word I can describe it. They, it's not exactly, um, there, there's a great appreciation for what drugs do, um, but also just, you know, just some ickiness around their pervasiveness. Um, and in that sense, it's very, you know, different, uh, very different drug attitudes that, from when I grew up. I mean, when I was 16, if someone told me there was a pill I could take to have a four-hour erection, I would have been all about it. And there's pills for, you know, everything, like, you know, uh, cognitive enhancement, physical enhancement, um, a wide variety of things that actually work pretty well sometimes. Um, you know, I mean, if we're trying to be our, if there's these strong imperatives to be our best selves, social media-ready selves, Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's a sick kind of rationality to it. Yeah. So, you know, again, I hate to be an old man yelling at trains, but <laughs> God damn it, those trains. Can we put some of this blame on the growth of social media and the way how pervasive mm -hmm. it is in our lives? Yeah. I mean, also another thing that really comes up a lot in my, my class on, um, in my class on drugs, like I'm, you know, alerted to these trends by my students. Like I, I, I haven't seen them myself. Um, but it does seem like there's new forms of advertising that work in somewhat insidious ways, uh, on social media. Like even, you know, I, I got sucked into this, uh, YouTube video about how anti-vaping ads actually are some are strangely make vaping seem appealing. Um, okay. yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's a sort of wild west of, of advertising and, um, you combine that with, um, new, new kinds of like, you know, telemed models and, um, yeah, I mean, it becomes very easy to access, to access a wide range of drugs. You know, we're, we're in the midst, um, we're the sort of tail end of an amphetamine shortage in America for a long time. It was, you know, this past year. 
mm-hmm. it was pretty difficult to fulfill uh, Ritalin and Adderall prescriptions. And it's generally recognized now that that was because of all of these telemed startups that came up during COVID. So, you know, they made it very easy to access amphetamines. You'd just meet with someone online for 10 minutes and they'd, they'd send the pills by the mail. Um, and quickly that ran up against DEA quotas for amphetamine production. So thus we get the, the amphetamine shortage. Well, you know, I mean, they were they were advertising all over social media at the time. So it was, um, you know, it was a very tight industry from social media to these telemed startups you could see drug advertisements and then use the same device to get those drugs within 10 minutes or so fascinating i mean i live in mexico so you can just get whatever you want over the counter so it's it's a very very different place yeah Um, (laughs) and not always illicit things you can get you know penicillin over the counter and my daughter has eczema. When she came here, she forgot her eczema medicine. She was able to get it over the counter. So there's mm. definitely benefits, I think, to being here. Uh, you write in your book, uh, to the point to point to the post-war period and the present one as times when drug use was normalized can thus only be something of a cruel joke. Post-war polydrug use reflected a fundamental belief, however coerced and driven by an underlying anxiety, that America was worth it. Today, it paints a portrait of the country as a giant palliative care unit. Oof. What did you mean by that? <laughs> so, um, you know, one way of portraying the thesis of the book is to say that drug consumption trends closely align with things going on in society. And not exactly that it's a misery index for capitalist subjects, but that we can see our stresses, anxieties, et cetera, in different forms of drug use. And a big challenge to this thesis is simply that the post-war era, this was one, uh, you know, this was a time of fabulous polydrug use. This was the high point of cigarette and coffee consumption. Uh, amphetamines, benzodiazepines, barbiturates, these were all fully normalized drugs to take, sort of like adult candy of the period. Um, and this, of course, was a, an era of great working class prosperity at the same time. So, you know, how does my thesis make, make sense of that? Uh, if we're taking drugs when we're doing well and we're taking drugs when we're doing bad, like what? What gives? Like, how do you make sense of that? Um, and I think the thesis still works, but just in different ways. So, you know, in the post-war era, there was great um, affluence, um, but we have to understand like where that affluence came from for a lot of people. So, you know, you get this great working-class upsurge in the 1930s and its institutionalization by the Congress of Industrial Organizations, uh, and and all of a sudden, you know, these industries that had long been uh, lacking unions, all of a sudden they became become 100 percent organized and, you know, working class uh, wages and security, um, you know, are, are, are at a height that um, they, they hadn't been known before. And we haven't seen them, them, them since in that way. Um, uh, but this age of prosperity for the working class. It was sort of built on, in a lot of ways, breaking the back of left-wing trade unionism um, and really giving over prerogative to management. And so the period was affluent, certainly, um, but it was an affluence that was bought at the cost of control. I mean, you um, you got uh, you got the high wages, but you didn't get control over the line. And so in that kind of society, you naturally want to participate in the affluence, um, but that means you know, adapting to this huge mechanical monster that you go to every day for work. It means adapting to an isolating domestic cell. Um, it wasn't a 
wonderful society always to be be in but it was materially well off and it made sense to use whatever means you had available to you to adapt to the present moment um so that's sort of how i make sense of the post-war period today obviously there's none of that working class prosperity or um or security um and but but i would argue that the stressors are different uh the moment is different you know we've been through the acute phase of the war on drugs and are out the other side um and in, in a lot of ways neoliberal society is breaking down and i think that um for that reason we have a whole range of drugs to help us cope with it um but again so you know according to the quote you read whereas drugs were used to adapt to a prosperous society in the post-war era today they're used to cope with a failing society uh fellow jacobin com uh, columnist paul prescott commented in the chat so we can thank cio for drugs wow unions are great <laughs> <laughs> it's not uh they 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 did a lot of good things i would say that you know i i, I don't want to make i didn't want to be too callous in uh in depicting the cio moment the cio was a breakthrough you know um i think that it's easy to say that they channeled and bottled and constrained working class energy but they solved a lot of organizing problems they solved them very quickly um so a, a lot you know a lot here depends on how you saw this moment like if you see 1937 as this great moment this great revolutionary moment that the key cio le leaders um bottled for their own ends you know that it's then it plays a constraining function if if you think that was the best they could do in 1937 which is the side i'm i'm more on um then you know it was a great accomplishment but again they didn't do much to change uh, to challenge management prerogative and in that kind of situation you know um you, you you've got the high wages but you have no control at work and um so you want to adapt and it just so happens that you know amphetamines benzodiazepines barbiturates like in various combinations these really help you do so and we can't forget cocaine well, cocaine was cocaine was actually not that known until the 60s. I mean, it's from roughly 1930 until the mid 60s and really blowing up in the 70s. Cocaine wasn't so much a drug that was known in America. And I, and I would say part of the reason that people adopted it so readily is that they had forgotten the entire discourse about cocaine in the late 19th century early 20th century that there was there were real fears about what was called cocainism at the time um and then because cocaine had basically dropped from american consciousness for three decades when it reappeared in the 60s people were like this is great i haven't heard of this but this is great <laughs> and and so you know that that lag in cultural memory i think partially explains the the real enthusiasm for cocaine what do you mean Freud's nose cavity was destroyed by this? <laughs> oh yeah, Freud, Freud was Freud was a uh, avid user of cocaine. He wrote this um, he wrote this paper um, early in his career. I think it's called just about cocaine or something like that. And he, you know, he invested a lot in it. He was taking it for a long time, not in heroic doses, but. He introduced it to a bunch of his friends that did become did begin abusing it eventually. Um, but surprise, surprise, Freud was introduced to cocaine by an American pharmaceutical company. So once mm. again, it comes back to the United States peddling drugs abroad. 
Sigmund, you need to finish a book, huh? <laughs> Do I got something for you? It's candy for your nostrils. That's uh, a good uh, 19th century drug peddler voice. <laughs> Again, there's a lot of characters we do on this show, and that's probably <laughs> the safest one. Uh, you'll you'll have to come back and meet Pog Chaser MLK. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, where's the laugh track when you need it? <laughs> no, sometimes just like no, just let it be real. Let it be real. Just cancel me now. Uh, in the 80s and 90s, crack cocaine was thought to be a plague in our society, and the people selling and using it had to be locked up for long periods of time. We saw the problem as dysfunctional people and greed. Simply. The violence that stemmed from the drug trade during this time was thought to be a surplus population of fatherless brown men. Incarceration was the solution. Drug cartels in South America and street gangs in the States. We now have multinational pharmaceutical corporations creating the demand and supplying in the case of opioids and the country as a whole is addicted. Locking up Sacklers isn't on the menu in the U.S.'s quest for vengeance. Why is it that we see the opioid crisis as a moral failing of people? And maybe some see it as greed if you blame the Sackler family directly, but many don't see it as a simple function of the capitalist system in which we live. There's more to gain financially in creating the disease than curing one, it seems. Hmm. You talk a little bit about this in your book. Yeah. Actually, um, you talk a lot about it in your book. <laughs> So uh, just on the difference between um, the, you know, the crack episode of the 1980s and the opioid epidemic today, you know, I, I think it's undeniable that just the different populations affected um, played a huge role in the differing responses, certainly. Um, you know, cr crack was, was and still is described as an epidemic, but that's a misnomer, you know, it wasn't an epidemic at all. It was, um, you know, an epidemic, it affects people indiscriminately, regardless of where they are. Uh, and this was, uh, the, you know, the crack scare was overwhelmingly a problem concentrated in poor black urban areas, right? The, the very mm -hmm. geographic concentration, in fact, is part, part of what fueled um, arrests. There's this great documentary by Eugene Jarecki um, called uh, The House I Live In. He basically gets cops on camera admitting that they focus on certain geographic areas because they're sure to get their numbers, right? And so you you have this whole incentive structure for policing that's upended by, by that. Um, with opioids, you know, it's all over the country. Um, and of course, this is a problem of prescription opioids in particular, like basically since, you know, since the Harrison Act in 1914, you have this rather artificial barrier between legal supposedly safe drugs and illegal, supposedly dangerous drugs. And, you know, wherever you get problems with, um, with the former, um, they're not, they're just not subject to the same scaremongering, you know? Um, and, and, you know, and, and as we've talked about, this divide is often completely irrational. Um, methamphetamine has long been used in, um, in uh, prescription medications. Fentanyl for a long time has been a very effective surgical anesthetic. Um, so these categories we use to understand drugs, um, they're oftentimes quite arbitrary, but they bear very different political consequences. Um, I guess there's one, one thing about the Sacklers in particular, you know, um, I had a really difficult time writing about the Sacklers in the book because they are uniquely 
evil, for lack of a better word. There's just too many awful quotes that you can pull from and say, oh, this this family, this family. <laughs> but but at the same time, um, I, I think that there's a way in which we can make too much of the Sacklers uh, to, to see agree. them as uniquely evil and to pardon other pharmaceutical companies. There's this, there's this historian named Kathleen Friedel who has this great article called The Pharma Cartel. And she wants to say, first of all, that if we want to understand what a cartel is, we should not look to um, cocaine distributors. We should not look to, to um, what happened in the 1970s and 80s. We should look to the American pharmaceutical industry. Like this is a textbook definition of a cartel. And if you look at the way in which the opioid crisis was uh, you know, unfolded, it was definitely the Sacklers that started it all. And this is why I devote some space in the book to, um, to you know, uh, pointing out the, the unique ways in which they, they, they caused things. But at the same time, every pharmaceutical company got in on the action as well. Um, and they made a lot of money off of it. So Purdue Pharma started it, but it was the whole pharmaceutical industry that followed. And uh, we don't typically think about it that way. You know, it's really fun to pick on the Sacklers. Um, you know, they're, um, yeah, their their evil and perniciousness can be depicted on television in a like a viewer friendly way. Um, it's really difficult to describe, you know, the pharmaceutical industry as such as evil in the same terms. I think that we lose something in just just focusing on the Sacklers. I agree. I mean, I think that's the problem with things like true crime, right? Like it, it yeah. views it views a lot of things as like the the evils of of certain people. And you can't see the picture as a whole. Like, I don't, you know, again, uh, when we think about crack cocaine in the 80s and 90s, I grew up in a city called Richmond, California, which you're probably not familiar with. Um, very, very violent city. Um, still is, was way worse during the 80s and 90s because industry had left. This was a port city at one point in time. Right. Uh, with a lot of work, and there was, you know, there was shipbuilding there at one point in time. The the, the Ford factory, there was a shipbuilding factory before that, is now a music venue that no one books, right? Same thing with South Central Los Angeles, where you saw the riots and a lot of the crack cocaine and a lot of the violence. Jobs had left. You get Reagan signing into law the legalization of of what three million immigrants which also changes uh the labor force as you're seeing more and more black men start to be able to get into it um jobs moving overseas deindustrialization like we don't really talk about these things that much when we talk about this level of violence and what again what became this industry that was just real easy you have open air drug markets for the most part Again, you have street gangs that are already in place. There's a reason why when you look at how street gangs grew in the later 80s, it was because there was so much money to be made. You just needed numbers. So you start, quote unquote, recruiting. You know, it's military looks the same way. Um, It's a bit of a poverty draft, if you will. You know, what what else Mm -hmm. are you going to do? And then you have movies like Boys in the Hood, where to me are just you know commercials for the '94 crime bill, where you know, the only way to get out is to literally get out or, or you know, play sports. 
Yeah, there, you know, there's there's a lot of books uh, written about crack in America, um, but one of the better ones uh, I think still holds up. I think it was written in '96. It's called "In Search of Respect" by Philippe Bourgeois. And he, um, you know, I think he lived in um, not the Bronx, but somewhere in upper Manhattan for for a long time. And, you know, he just became friends with like street dealers and, you know, was an anthropologist. So he he got to know them. Um, And his, you know, for for all of the personal stories that he elicits from his interview subjects, he basically comes down to saying this is deindustrialization. This is a problem of economically blighted neighborhoods. Like if you, if if there were better economic opportunities for these guys, they would absolutely take them. They would absolutely take them. But when you have, you know, poorly paid service work opportunities available um, versus uh, the huge, uh, you know, gains of illicit activity, they're going to choose the latter. Um, So at the end of the day, I think he, he thought the problem was quite, quite simple this was an this was an economic this was an economic one what happens in deindustrialized cities uh after the jobs are gone i mean we don't talk about it even when we think about the methamphetamine boom in the late 90s and early 2000s where you know family farms are going the way of the dodo yeah um the original the original script for the movie pretty woman is about corporate takeovers and the destruction of small towns (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in the Rust Belt, and how those women came to a lot of them came to L.A. to, you know, for opportunity and became you know, sex workers. That's what the original story is about. Um, we don't really talk about this and how these guys were making, you know, bathtub meth, yeah, and getting hit with RICO charges. And again, I think you know, I don't know how you feel about the new Jim Crow. Um, I don't necessarily agree with Michelle Alexander's thesis that white people are collateral damage of uh, yeah. the war on drugs um, because it's just kind of a hand-waving almost uh, acknowledgement to the middle of the country where everybody not doesn't look like me and you. <laughs> and these people are getting locked up at rapid rates. And they yeah. generational wealth, you know, this... They came from generational poverty, a lot of these guys as well. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's two things to point to there. Like one is that, um, you know, there are a lot of white people incarcerated for drug offenses as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I, I, you know, I think it holds up. It's one of the better things made about the war on drugs at a period where it was still fresh. Eugene Jarecki's The House I Live In. Um, and they, they work through a lot of different explanations for what's going on. But I think he, he ultimately comes to a kind of economic uh, argument uh, for why this thing persists. Yet the other thing I should say just about um, the opioid crisis is that it's often it's oftentimes portrayed as if, um, you know, uh, white opioid addicts go to drug treatment and there's more of a moral response. I, I think that that's undeniable. But but on the other hand, I think that that overlooks the insidiousness of the drug treatment program in mm-hmm. America. Um, Herman Lopez, a, a, a journalist for Vox, did some really good reporting about just what it looks like. Um, it's pretty terrifying and not so different from the sort of for-profit prison system. Um, so, you know, just uh, the, the the way in which a lot of opioid addicts were were dealt with um, once the the meds stopped coming in. 
um, it it wasn't uh, it wasn't a pretty picture. And so I think on on you know just just seeing the opioid crisis is something that was uh, you know that we went lightly on. I don't think that's exactly right. Yeah, I mean the house I live in is I've seen that maybe four times. Okay. I don't even know where you can find it anymore. Is it on Amazon anymore? Do you know Eugene Jarecki? I don't. I don't know. I think that there's. Um, I think that there might be an internet archive version of the film. It's Ooh. definitely available for free somewhere online. Yeah. He actually is the only person I've seen get into the weeds. It, it, you know, he definitely yeah. tackles the racial element of it. He definitely tackles the economic element, but he also tackles the fact that there were. You know, he has a guy in it that got a bunch of years i think he got a rico charge for making bathtub meth to to fund his own habit and a lot of cats that are locked up for long periods of time that got locked up for long periods of time in the 80s and 90s if you were gang affiliated if you had a weapon on you and you had a little bit of dope they're about to put you under the jail do you think those days are over um I don't know in all honesty. I mean, I think that there is broad so so there there's the the discourse around the war on drugs and there's the reality of the war on drugs. Mm-hmm. And the sad truth is that the latter continues apace in a lot of ways. Um it's lost its ideological justification, you know, I the left has long been a critic of the war on drugs. Today, you see the same kind of criticisms on the right as well. Um, and in fact, you know, criticism of um, the illegal drug market has long been a principal position of the libertarian right. Uh, you know, they love mm-hmm. pointing to illegal drug markets as demonstrating the importance of free market capitalism. Um, so we're at this moment where no one really believes in it anymore, I would argue. Um, but it still goes on. Like many of the same incentives are in place. Um, and, you know, I mean, the, the like certain things have been revised around um, around policing, around mandatory minimums in very sort of nominal ways. Uh, but it still goes on. And so um, we're at this unique contradiction where no one no one really believes in it anymore. But this thing keeps going on without us. It's actually quite representative of <laughs> a lot of things in American politics. I mean, the propaganda war I'm seeing doesn't seem to be one that is based on gang violence and uh, corner drug selling a little bit, but it seems to be more about the unhoused, yeah. um, their addiction to opioids, dying on the street, a pushback against, um, I can't even think of the word now, um, where you give people needles. I can't think of it. Um, harm reduction i'm so sorry yeah. uh there's still a pushback on on harm reduction but i'm seeing more and this is all over the country i'm seeing more people talk about petty theft yeah as the scourge petty theft and homeless the bull the the, the, <clears throat> the visceral reality of homelessness yeah petty theft i see that more of a political talking point than drugs i think that's right and in that sense it's portrayed as a tragic problem rather than a dangerous problem Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways 
Um, I would not uh, count drug warriorism out for good, however. Um, yeah, I mean, I, so I think that in, in a lot of ways, um, the legalization and decriminalization, especially in certain states, and I think we're going to see a massive divide in terms of individual states on this question. Mm-hmm. I think certain trends in that way are going to continue on um, it, with the psychedelics market. Again, I just don't see much slowing down that train. I think it's just going to happen. That that being said, we're in this unique moment, unique, unique technological moment where the drugs actually are more dangerous than they used to be. Um, and partially that's a result of just the magic of organic chemistry. You know, I mean, part, part of the difficulty with, um, fentanyl in particular is that, um, you know, you, you, uh, like you ship over a bunch, uh, through Mexico, you know, into the United States, uh, or sometimes directly through the mail and, um, it's legal one day, right. And they figure out the particular form of fentanyl. They make that illegal. They say, you can't ship that anymore. Well, you know, you've got chemists working uh, hard on this. They change like one molecule. It's a completely different drug. You can't call it that anymore. And then all of a sudden uh, it's made its way back into the United States. Um, this is this is a game of what the um, the drug journalist Zachary Siegel calls opiate whack-a-mole. Uh, you like get one, you, you label one form of fentanyl illegal and the next day some new version appears. Um, this is one microcosm of the broader drug scene. I mean, the the synthetic market for drugs, it's potentially infinite. You know, the kinds of things that we're going to see in the 21st century blow the stuff we were, you know, smoking and swallowing in the 20th century out of the water. And um, especially as the psychedelic stuff proceeds apace, you know, I think that we're going to start to see a lot of this stuff circulating. So you know, it's not just marijuana. It's like oregano sprayed with K2. It's very strong opiates. It's new forms of methamphetamine that are produced in ways different from the old ephedrine derived methamphetamine. Um, and then there's this huge synthetic, uh, th- this huge synthetic market that's long been explored by so-called psychonauts. I can see a lot of those things begin to seep into the mainstream. Um, there's this, you know, if anyone's interested, there's this website called uh, arrowid.org, E-R-O-W-I-D.org. Um, and it looks like the kind of thing that you'd get a virus from on your computer, uh, <laughs> but it's fine. I've been there. It's okay. Uh, and, and, and what they do is they, um, you know, it's this collection of drug enthusiasts that like recording their, that like, like trying new substances and record their experiences on those substances. And you go through the drugs. I mean, uh, you know, I, I have been studying this for a while. 95% of the things on that website I've never seen before in my life. Um, it really is like a potentially infinite market, the amount of drugs that can be out there. And given that, given the fact that this stuff will be circulating in the 21st century, I could see a renewed drug warriorism. You know, people who are like, that's enough. We need we need a strong prohibition arm once again. Um, and you already see this in some some cases that we just need to bring back strong drug interdiction. So I wouldn't count the drug warrior attitude out for good. I, it, it doesn't feel the same way it felt in the 80s and 90s. 
but I I, yeah. I see what you're saying. I, At this particular I, I don't disagree with you. I don't disagree with you. Yeah. But can you tell us a little bit about K2? I've heard I'm look, I'm the squarest bear in the room. I did music for years <laughs> and never did. I still haven't done anything boring as shit. Um what is what is K2? What have you heard about K2? <laughs> Um, it is something, um, that, um, you can, so, you know, it's, it's a synthetic substance. Like you can spray it on something that looks like weed. And, um, as with most drugs, if you dose it correctly and you know what you're doing, it, you could, you could produce effects that are very similar to smoking cannabis. It's very similar. The problem is that, um, you know, as with methamphetamine and fentanyl and a lot of other synthetic substances, when you aren't dosing it correctly, you can um, cause overdoses or you can, um, you know, spray too much K2 on the oregano and all of a sudden you're having a very different time than if you were just smoking weed. Um, so it's, you know, it's again one of those synthetic substances where it's possible under the right circumstances with people who know what they're doing, um, who are dosing it correctly, who are, you know, offering it through a safe route of administration in a safe environment. It's possible to use it well. It's just in, in current circumstances where um, it's kind of a, it's a cheap alternative to, to weed to produce, um, uh, you know, it's going to be used incorrectly and cause problems. So was that the stuff that was in, was it salvia? No, I think, yeah, no, those, those are, those are different. Did you ever watch that video of <laughs> the people smoking, was it salvia? And they, one dude just ran through. <laughs> you remember those videos back in the day, like the early days of, of YouTube? I don't, but if you send me some after this, <laughs> it sounds fun. I will, I will, I will find if they're still around. I'll find some. <laughs> there was one of Tommy Chong smoking salvia and walking. He, they were two. They were both smoking it, and they were like walking through like a, an obstacle course. And the other dude just fell. He just he couldn't do it. And Tommy Chong just, I mean, they definitely like he was walking in Narnia, but he, uh, there were some interesting videos when that stuff came out of people recording themselves, uh, <laughs> getting high with that shit. You, um, you, people do fairly ridiculous things on drugs. It's true. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> you know, one, I mean, one interesting thing about the psychedelic moment today that's, um, yeah, I, I, I really want to dig into this a little bit more. Um, but a lot of the psychedelic enthusiasts are pretty hostile to, you know, Tim Leary and that whole bunch, right? They, they kind of think the 60s counterculture was a huge mistake. And they look back at they look back at the psychedelic counterculture and it's sort of like us watching those videos on YouTube. They're like, that's totally ridiculous. Like, why were they doing it that way? There's a responsible way to use psychedelics, and that means doing it in a fairly curated environment with licensed professionals facilitating the experience. Um, and so the whole psychedelic moment at present, it's um, it's very curated. Uh, it's very professionalized. Like they want psychedelics to be used in a responsible way. 
They don't want any YouTube videos being made of psilocybin trips. They want it being carefully curated in in regulated environments. Mm -hmm. And that's a new <clears throat> that's a really new thing, you know, like psychedelic moment represented some kind of democratic liberatory impulse for so long. And now it's totally professionalized and all the key organizations want it to remain so. I mean, those people sound boring as fuck. I had a good friend that his only job was working for the Grateful Dead. He met him during the Ken Kesey acid test and he, he left when Jerry Garcia died. He helped build the wall of sound. Mm -hmm. This man tells the best stories about psychedelics. I mean, it sounds like they were getting high and having orgies. So I don't know how they were doing it wrong. It sounds to me like they were doing it right. <laughs> Yeah, and, and it's really it's it's pretty notable. Um, you know, the the key figures in the present psychedelic movement, and most of all, um, Rick Doblin at the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, they have been on this you know for decades now, like pushing the the latest research on the treatment of PTSD or depression uh, with MDMA, with LSD, etc. They are very nervous about this thing being uh becoming a mass phenomenon like they don't want psychedelics to be released to the people again because they thought that you know it went very poorly they thought that this is what invites prohibition right it's it's because of the counterculture that you got the prohibition of mm -hmm. lsd in 1965 it's because mdma was known as a club drug that you got prohibition in 1985 with with mdma and so they're very careful about this. They want it to be a professionalized experience. Um, they want, um, you know, Silicon Valley executives microdosing. They're okay with that because they're supposedly responsible people. But um, for everyone else, they want this to be a highly facilitated experience. These people really sound like they suck. Like, it's okay to say these people suck. Well, they're the, I, I didn't say that. You said that. <laughs> But they're the ones, they're the ones uh, I mean, at the forefront of the psychedelic. It industry. sounds like they're mad they weren't at the orgy. That's how you talk when you don't get invited to the orgy. You're like, you guys are doing it wrong. It's like, no, we're all doing it right. Look, we, you can't sit anywhere near there because we all did it right. There's a, there's a paper to be written about uh, the present psychedelic moment just titled, When You're Not Invited to the Orgy. <laughs> And you just have a bunch of Silicon Valley dudes with like no one around them at like outside lands or something. Yeah, like all, all talking them. to each other about how great their ketamine trips were. Yeah, <laughs> like, oh, dude, I have like the coolest land yacht at Burning Man. <laughs> it's like no one cares. That guy over there in a VW Bug is having a 15 person orgy. <laughs> and they all think they're climbing a tree. They're winning. <laughs> Well, Ben, thank you so much for hanging out with us tonight. Yeah, thanks you, so much for having me. I know you probably have laundry to fold. You said you have some <laughs> little do. people in your house. Finally finished over there. And that is uh and that is a never-ending process when you have a family of folding laundry. Every day. It's never it's never over. Hmm. It's never over. You think it's over, it's never over. It's that buzzing sound, I'm sure, is just like it's like the work bell for you. Yep. It goes off every day at the same time. <laughs> His book is called Quick Fixes, American Drugs from Prohibition to the Great Binge, 
wherever you are watching or listening to this show later, there is a link in the description to the book. It's out right now. Are you doing any other speaking engagements anywhere? Where can people find you? I know you wrote an article in Jacobin not too long ago. Where else are you writing? Yeah, I wrote, I wrote for uh, Jacobin, for Damage Magazine, for Catalyst, um, a few other outlets, and uh, I'm mostly done with the in-person events. Uh, I've got a, I've got one in Santa Fe coming up next year, but um, but mostly done with the in-person events, just doing podcasts and stuff for the book. Um, okay, and you've done all of my friends, right? You did Ben Burgess's show, you yep. did Matt and David, yeah, those are all my friends. You did Majority Report? uh no i haven't done that actually what jimmy door no not jimmy door either oh wow who yeah. else is there out there i don't know who else is out there i'm just making up names at this point i'll i'll happily talk to anyone though i'll send a message to sam he, he cool. actually loves stuff like this cool uh cool. ben thank you so much again i'm seriously uh i really enjoyed the book i'm gonna finish it uh, Tucson and I always joke we we read so much to get ready for the show and then rarely do we go back and finish it. I really want to finish this because this is one of those books where you you have a lot of good conversations when you when you read it. There's just someone in the chat, uh, Wind Spirit in the chat says he uh, read the book and said he couldn't put it down. Nice. Um, so yeah, I mean, I try to I try to make it. Um a fun read, you know, not a beach read exactly because it can be kind of depressing sometimes, but, uh, but you know, the, the chapters, they can, they can be kind of read as standalone chapters. There's chapters, mm -hmm. chapters devoted to they're, they're it's broken up by drug or class of drugs. It's chapters on coffee, cigarettes, alcohol, amphetamines, et cetera. And, um, yeah, no, I try to make it, make it accessible and include lots of pictures as well. If you pick it up, you can find all sorts of pretty wild, uh, drug advertisements over the years. No orgy picks, huh? Uh, no orgy picks, uh, but there is a there is a nude Santa Claus that you can that you can find if you look very closely. You leave an Easter eggs. Yeah. You have to look very close because all the images are in black and white. You know, there's no like middle insert of nice color images, and so it's all black and white. And so the images are a little bit hazy, but. Check out Santa Claus in the book. Oh, Jesus. Thank you very much. We'll be back tomorrow night. Um, I'll be with... I'll be talking about something I don't know off the top of my head. Pascal Robert recorded the Mau Mau Hour live before we went on, and we'll be airing that this Saturday for you people. And on that note, where is it at? We...